Good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Esther chapter 2, verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, who was also known as Esther. The newly crowned queen is the only character in the story with two names. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. It is the name her parents had given her. It appears only once in this verse. The young queen is better remembered by her other name. Esther is likely her Persian name. It is the name given to her by the non-Jewish people of the empire. It appears 55 times in the story. You know, having two names was not uncommon for people living during those times. One was their birth name. The other was taken from the foreign culture in which they found themselves. We see this practice even today. Immigrants often adopt another name when they move to their host country. The same happened to Daniel and his three friends. All of us know Daniel is his Hebrew name. Belteshazzar is his Babylonian name. In the book of Daniel, the Hebrew name is foremost. Few readers will recall his Babylonian name. In a book of Esther, it's the other way around. It is her Persian name that stands out. Few readers will remember her Hebrew name. Now, based on this observation, could the names most frequently used in Daniel or Esther be intentional? Could they be hints to the readers as to which of the two had assimilated into the foreign culture and which had not. You know, St. Augustine, in the city of God, divides human society into two cities, depending on how man lives. There is the city of man, where men live according to themselves. There is also the city of God, where men live according to God's laws and desire, sorry, and design. Jesus also says this of his followers, John chapter 17, verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So there is the world, which is the city of men. There is also Jesus' explicit acknowledgement that there is another plane of existence that is not of the world, which is the city of God. If you read the book of Esther, in a certain sense, the book of Esther is in the world. The secular nature of the book of Esther is intentional. It reflects the world in which the people of God find themselves. You know, this world, I realize, it impinges upon us, impinges upon our senses. It is the first thing we notice when we open our eyes in the morning. It is the last thing we see before we close our eyes, 
before we close our eyes at night. And in between those times, it unceasingly calls out to us. This world promises us enticing rewards in exchange for our love and loyalty. It persuades us to live according to its rules and regulations. It offers us a tantalizing view of reality rooted in material things. It convinces us that there is no other life, but only this life in this world. It constantly tempts the people of God to make their permanent home here. That's the world we live in. But we also know this, that this world is also unstable, given to erratic behaviour. You know, one moment it exhorts a young Jewish girl and crowns her as queen of Persia. The next, it enacts a murderous decree to exterminate all her people in all 127 provinces of Persia and Media. That is why I said earlier in my other sermon, the world with which the people of God have to contend is volatile uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. In fact, the closing words of chapter 3 of the book of Esther confirms it. This is what it says, And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. That's the world we live in. That's the world we find ourselves in. Such is the world we live in. Let us look at Esther chapter 4, verse 1 to 17, and let's continue the story. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. Open your Bibles there. And as I read, follow along with me. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Esther 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to, coat, to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth, but he will not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree 
issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hattak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hattak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being caught, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But, if, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Ahasuerus, the king, had deposed Vashti. Esther was made queen in her place. Mordecai the Jew then saved the king when he uncovered a plot to assassinate him. But Haman saw the Jews only as mortal enemies, a hatred that had simmered for many generations. As a result, Esther now finds herself caught in a dilemma between a rock and a hard place. You know, to find a propitious time to exterminate the Jews and plunder their goods, Haman cast the lot or pearl in the month of Nisan, the first month. On the 13th day of the first month, chapter 3, verse 12, the decree was published and sent out. The decree, for those of you who are very alert to dates, the decree to annihilate the Jews was sent out on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Remember this? Numbers 28 verse 16. On the 14th day of the first month is the Lord's Passover. But the decree went out throughout the entire kingdom on the eve of the Passover. Now, all of us know what the Passover means to the Jews, isn't it? All of us know the Passover commemorates the deliverance of the Jews. I wonder, is this knowledge 
this understanding that enabled Mordecai later on to say relief and deliverance will come from another place because that's what the Passover always reminded the Jews of, relief and deliverance. But the edict received by Jews during that particular Passover calls for their destruction. No, this is tragically ironic. Exodus chapter 12, verse 23 says this. The Jews will remember this. Perhaps the Jews will even recount this story during the celebration of the Passover. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, He will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. And here I am, a Jew, imagine, holding out the edict. You know what the edict say? And according to the edict, the enemies of the Jews will enter their houses and strike them down. The joy of the Passover has turned to sorrow. On receiving the news, Mordecai weeps loudly and bitterly. Now you understand why. He tears his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai's public show of distress troubles Esther. Through her attending eunuch, Hatak, she finds out about the edict against the Jews. Mordecai commands her to go to the king and plead for her people. Esther finds herself in a quandary. No one approaches the king without being summoned. For the last 30 days, Esther hasn't been called to go in to the king. It doesn't seem likely that she will be summoned anytime soon. Going to the king uninvited is a death penalty, even for a queen, unless the king holds out his golden scepter and spares her life. Mordecai reminds Esther that she is far from safe. She may hide in the palace, she may continue to hide her Jewish identity, but she can't hide from her certain fate. For this is what Mordecai said, For if you keep silent at this time, you and your father's house will perish. Esther finds herself caught between a rock and a hard place. If she goes to the king uninvited, she will perish. If she doesn't go, she will also perish. Have you ever faced a situation like this? Go this way, die. Go that way, also die. Esther's predicament is not trivial. Her life is at stake. The life of her people is at stake. Finding herself in a thorny dilemma, Esther now faces a decision. Go with the flow or against it. Here is where I believe 
her two names take on special significance. Is she Esther, the Persian queen, or is she Hadassah, the Jewish woman? Which defines her more? Which is her real identity? Mordecai said this to Esther, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the, Jew, from, for the Jews from another place. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying to Esther, remember that you are a Jew first and only second a queen. You will make queen only to bring relief and deliverance to the Jews. If you don't do this, another will. Esther is facing one of those defining moments that change everything. What will she choose? Will she choose to remain incognito among the pagans? Or will she choose to live in identification with the people of God? Will she choose the earthly city of Susa? Or will she choose the heavenly city of Zion? Will she be of this world? Or will she be not of this world? You see, to save her people, Esther has to give up the idea of saving herself. She has to reveal her hidden identity. She has to run the risk of making herself a target of the destruction decreed by Haman. She has to place herself at the mercy of the king. The king had allowed Vashti to be deposed as queen. He may find it necessary, according to the law of Persia and Media, to allow Esther to die if she come unannounced. Esther replies to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night and or day. I, my young woman, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You know, so far, in a story, Esther has been passive. She allowed herself to be taken into the king's harem. She submitted to the beauty treatments. She listened to Mordecai and kept her nationality secret. She went into the king when it was her turn to do so. She took to the palace what Haggai, the king's eunuch, suggested. Esther, so far in the story, had allowed others to decide for her. Now comes the defining moment where she has to decide for herself. To go with the flow, to keep silent and remain as Esther the queen, or to go against the flow, to speak up and reveal herself as Hadassah, the Jew. Defining moments like this happen to Christians as well. We too face life situations where we have to decide one way or the other. 
to go with the flow, to do what everybody else in the world is doing. They scared, I scared. They panic, I panic. They stab people, I also stab people. No difference. To go with the flow. Everybody is doing it. Or what's wrong? They are being rewarded for it. What's wrong? Nothing wrong. Let's go with the flow to conduct ourselves as the rest of the world, as the people of the world. Or to go against the flow to conduct ourselves as people of God. To remember who is really in charge and in control. My previous sermon, I say, where real power lies, where do you think it lies? But know this, either way, to go with the flow or to go against the flow, there will be far-reaching consequences. Esther life-defining decision, you see, will determine destiny with her or without her not just her own destiny, but also the destiny of a people. All of us know this. I mentioned this earlier on. That's why I brought it up much earlier on. This great reversal of destiny is in the making. Because that's God's plan. God will see it come to pass regardless. Because His plan stands firm forever. So this great reversal of destiny is in the making. Esther may not see it or know it, but the readers of the book, all of us, are aware of it. This great reversal will happen either with Esther or without her. Esther has to resolve the dilemma. She has to decide who she really is. Is she a Jew who happens to be a queen or is she a queen who happens to be a Jew? I bring all this back to one simple question which I want to raise this morning. The question of identity. Very important. It is the question of identity. Identity always determines the life choices we make. Who we are defines what we do. Moses also had to make a radical choice. Remember this? Hebrews recorded this of him. Hebrews 11, 23 to 25. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Will Esther do the same? You have no idea of the temptation to do otherwise. You are not there. You're not facing the death threat. She was told to hide her identity, so she behaved like a person. She has to. In order to hide her identity, she cannot in any way show herself to be a Jew. But now, that moment comes. Will Esther do the same? 
Christians today are also confronted with a similar decision. Our situation may differ from Esther or even Moses. We may not be the queen of Persia or the prince of Egypt, but we too face our own share of defining moments. Choosing a vocation, after all, this is our theme this morning, isn't it? Choosing a marriage partner. Choosing a life purpose. You see, the most fundamental of these defining moments, however, has to do with this greater reversal of destiny. This greater reversal of destiny is also in the making. God is behind the scenes working it out. It will happen either with us or without us. We have to decide one way or the other. Will we live as children of the world or will we live as children of God? A question of identity. Our choice defines us. It shows us who we really are. It informs our identity. It explains the company we keep. Our choice also distinguishes us. It sets us apart from the others. It marks us as different. It explains our conduct before others. Finally, our choice determines our destiny. Our predicament may be nothing like Esther's, but our dilemma is essentially the same. What do I mean? If you pick the world, you die. If you pick Christ, you also die. If you pick the world, you die. But if you pick Christ, you also die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German Lutheran pastor executed by the Nazis, clearly understood this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We have essentially the same dilemma. You choose the world, you die. You choose Christ, you must also die. Following Christ is hard. You die to self. You take up your cross daily. You crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Following Christ is hard, but not following Christ is harder. You reject His offer of salvation. You spurn His mercy and grace. You cut yourself off from eternal life. Remember this. When people, when you, whenever you think of discipleship or disciple-making, you think it is hard. Remember, non-discipleship is harder. If you think following Jesus is hard, not following Jesus is harder. Remember that. So which will you choose? I offer you this choice this morning. The Lord offers this choice this morning. We are impacted by the COVID situation. And I'm concerned that the church, instead of standing up as a child of God, with God with you, for you, and nothing can be against you, we are reacting like the world. I'm scared. 
don't want to come to church. I'm comfortable. I stay at home. I ask the question, when you do all these things, what is it saying about who you really are? Are you no different from the rest of the world or are you different? Which will you choose? On which side will you stand? When the goings get tough, to whom do you turn? You know, on learning about the edict of death, Jews throughout the empire mourn with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Now, this phrase is very interesting. There's one other place where this phrase, the Hebrew phrase, is found. Exactly the same. The phrase fasting and weeping and lamenting in verse 3 is exactly the same as in Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Listen. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Same Hebrew phrase. Exactly the same words. This scriptural link is made even more certain by the next two verses. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. The call here is repentance. I think the church has much to repent during this season. Isn't it true? You find yourself caught between a rock and a hard place. You know, why don't you choose to see that rock as Christ? And then lean on Him. Yes, it's between a rock and a hard place, but one of them is Jesus Christ, the rock. Lean on Him. You too can go with the flow or against it. Choose to go with Christ, even if it is against the flow. Choose to be God's child. Choose to identify with God's people. Choose to be the vessel that God can use for good. Second Timothy Chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Now, in a large house, there are not only vessels of gold or of silver, but also of wood and of clay. Some are for honour and some for dishonour. If anyone therefore purges himself from this, he will be a vessel for honour, sanctified and suitable for the master's use, prepared for every good work. You know, unlike Esther, Christians today have something better. We have Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have the advantage of hindsight, which is the Holy Scriptures. Because 2 Timothy also goes on to say this in the next chapter, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learnt it. 
and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's what the Lord gives us this for, so that we can learn. There's a lot of people we can learn from, even Esther. You are presently, all of us are presently facing one of life's defining moments. It has come upon us unexpectedly. You have, none of us have control over it. But you can trust the Lord who sees in secret. Purge yourselves from the defilements of this world. Live as a child of God. Be devoted to God. Be a diligent student and practitioner of the Holy Scriptures. Be a vessel for honour, sanctified, suitable for the Lord's you, prepared for every good work. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord. Follow Him wholeheartedly. Pray without ceasing. Who knows? Perhaps, you are or we are where we are for such a time as this to bring relief and deliverance to those around us. For after all, isn't that our calling? This is my understanding of vocation. It all depends on what your identity is. Child of God or child of the world. Your vocation depends on the choice you make. Every day. Let us pray. Let me, let me give you some time to respond. You know, I, I, I learned something. Following Jesus is a daily choice. It's not just made during your conversion. It's every day. Today, Lord, yes to you. I'm following you. Why not you say yes to Jesus today, this morning, again? And then ask Him to show you what this means for you during this season? How can you stand up for Him before the world so that it defines you, distinguishes you, and one day determines your destiny? Heavenly Father, right this very moment, hear the response of your people here. as they decide, O oh Lord, between the rock and the hard place, may they see the rock as Jesus Christ, the rock upon which they can stand and never will be shaken. Help them, Heavenly Father, to follow Christ, even though it is hard, because not following Christ is even harder. And Lord, if this means going against the flow, grant them the courage of Esther to go against the flow, even if they perish, they perish. Because, O oh Lord, what you promise after is eternal life, life with you forevermore. So, Lord, our choice, our daily choice determines our destiny. And not only our destiny, but the destiny of the people around us. For we are here on earth to bring relief and deliverance to those around us. And we are made for a time such as this. So, who knows that the Lord may not use us simple us, ordinary us, to help someone turn back to the Lord and make the right decision
to follow Christ so that they too may see a reversal of their destiny. We give you thanks. In your name we pray and let the people of God say, Amen.